I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 444 for February 16th, 2015. Today's guest is Peter Applebaum. You can become a member of the Jazz Session for $5 a month. It gets you MP3s and other exclusive content, and the money goes directly toward keeping the archives of these 444 episodes online for you to stream and download whenever you want. If you like what you hear and you would like to have access to it going forward into the future, please consider kicking in $5 a month by going to thejazzsession.com slash join. That's thejazzsession.com slash join. If you listen to the show in iTunes, do me a favor and rate and review the show there. It just helps the show become more visible to other people who might be interested in the Jazz Session. So please leave a favorable review and give it a good rating, and that will help the show rocket up the iTunes ranks. There's a radio version of the Jazz Session where I play music, like the kind of stuff you hear on this show. You can listen to it Friday mornings from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. To find out how to listen wherever you are, just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the Radio Edition tab. One of the dreams of my life has always been to do stand-up, and this weekend I am getting paid for the first time in my life to make people laugh. Coming up this Friday and Saturday, February 20th and 21st, I'll be doing three shows at Wisecrackers in State College, Pennsylvania. If you are anywhere near there, visit jasoncrane.org and you'll find ticket information there, and I would love to see you. Speaking of jasoncrane.org, that's my blog where you'll find poetry and essays and lots of other things. I've been writing on it a lot more these days. Uh, I always was posting poetry pretty frequently, but now I'm posting many other kinds of things. So if you'd like to see what's happening inside my brain, just visit jasoncrane.org. And while you're online, check out cranewrites.com for all your professional writing needs. If you're an artist who's looking for a press release or a bio, check out cranewrites.com and I can do it for you. I'm glad you're here. We have an interesting show. I want to make one technical note, which is that we had a little bit of a connection issue when Peter and I first began speaking. So for the first few minutes of the interview, you might notice that that the audio is a little sketchy, but then it greatly improves uh, as the show continues. So if you can make it through the first few minutes, you'll be fine after that. Okay, here's some music from Peter Applebaum's new project called Sparkler. Turn it on like fire 
come with me cause I wanna fly a kite with a very long rope and long long tassels and, and lots of colors and lots of feeling and lots of feeling and lots of feeling you make me wanna write till my memory is full my guest is Peter Apfelbaum. He and his band Sparkler have released an EP called I Colored It In For You, and it is my pleasure to have Peter on the show. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be here, Jason. Thank you. So, Peter, I live now in a, in a college town, in the town where Penn State is, and I had there for uh, an easy opportunity to uh, perform a, a test for Sparkler, which was that I played it for... Uh, a 23-year-old woman who's a friend of mine who is not at all into jazz or improvised music, and I just played the EP, and she said, man, that is a great song, um, which I thought was a pretty good sign, and it seems like maybe it speaks to exactly what you were going for with Sparkler, which, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but which seems to be to kind of focus on on groove and songs and maybe reaching a a wider audience than improvised music can sometimes get to. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, first of all, I'm glad to hear her reaction. And um, I have always really enjoyed getting positive responses from people who are not necessarily jazz lovers, because even though that's, that's my, uh, a big part of my background, um, there's always been a part of what I've done that doesn't quite fit into that. And actually I think of it as, kind of um, reasserting the role of rhythm that jazz once had as dance music itself. Um, and and I think that um, what we are trying to do with this, and, and one reason that I was inspired to create Sparkler was that um, I, 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 I see so much of groove music and um, experimental dance music as really having a lot of potential for creative development and people like Bill Laswell who did a remix of the Sparkler track and whose label it appears on um, was one of the first people that I heard back in the early 80s who really was able to do um, very experimental and creative music um, over a, a constant groove. So I sort of, I see it as our form, a lot of possibilities um, and, but the main thing is is, is getting it out to people and, and seeing how people respond. It, it definitely is, we definitely are hoping to reach um, a wide audience with it. And members of the band are almost 23-year-old young women themselves. So Natalie, the trombonist, is 24, and Jill, the saxophonist and singer, is 22. So they're kind of in that ballpark themselves. And I'll just mention for folks that uh, Natalie Cressman has been on the jazz session, so people can go in the archives and listen to that, and uh, Jill Ryan probably will be someday. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned Natalie and Jill, because another thing that, uh, to some degree, sets Sparkler apart from things like uh, the New York Hieroglyphics Band is that this is, a, uh, at least in what we can hear in the EP, a band with a lot of vocals in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how, how that fit into your conception of what Sparkler would be? Yeah. Well, I've always been interested in words. I've always collected words, and I like uh, making song titles. Um, I'm somebody who, for most of my life, have created instrumental music, and when it comes to a song title, the song title, 99% of it doesn't really tell you what the music is. I see it at almost more as a word parallel. It's like... Um, 
thinking of a word or a phrase or, or a name or something that can go with the sound you've created, but it really doesn't come close to describing it. Other composers work differently, and that can be great, too. Um, somebody could come up with a piece about falling leaves or a piece about their grandmother or something like that. And I've done that, but mostly the way I work is just the music is the music, and it's it's on it's in its own dimension, and the the words can be a, a just sort of a parallel to go along with it. But that said, I've always wanted to write music with words, and um, I've done it in small doses throughout my life. But I've always found the marriage of music and words um, pretty difficult. Um, but a few years ago, I kind of had a revelation that you could write a song and the lyrics don't have to be genius lyrics for it to be a good song. Um, and that kind of took some of the pressure off. I started writing down things that I overheard in airports, um, random conversations. Um, and we experimented with a variety of, I guess you could call them songs. I, I don't even know if they qualify as songs. But their lyrics um, be sung or uttered or whispered over music. Um, and I started to really have fun with it. And it went along with my long-standing desire to form a group small in hieroglyphics that could focus on dance music. Well, Natalie has been on my mind as a potential collaborator for a while. She's subbed for Josh Roseman, the other trombonist in hieroglyphics and then she became kind of a, a part of that as a trombonist um but since she's the daughter of one of my oldest friends Jeff Cressman who's a trombonist himself he's on tour with Santana most of the time um she's actually my goddaughter and it was natural to want to collaborate with her and have her try out some vocals um Jill Ryan the other vocalist in the band is also from the Bay Area, um, and she knew Natalie um, a bit just from growing up there. She's actually from Novato, a little town just north of the Bay Area. Um, and she also is a wonderful player and singer. So I had them over to the house. We ran through various lyrics and we tried ideas that I had where they would each sing a phrase and one person would start where the other person left off, like they would, uh, Natalie would say a phrase and on her final word, Jill would start. Um, so there'd be kind of this overlapping. Um, I feel like that doesn't happen in vocal music all that much, and it could be exploited more. In instrumental music, it happens all the time. There's people with different attacks, different tone combinations, or different, obviously different notes. Having Simultaneously, and that's something I've always been interested in with this kind of layered approach, um, polymelodic or polyrhythmic way that I'm used to writing and I love to express myself. So with words, we kind of try to do that too, where there'd be different things going on. Um, on one piece that we've been doing lately, they each trade words, and it gets really up to this rapid fire um, trading of, of words, and it's 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 challenging to do because it's it goes by really fast, but it's really effective and it gets this kind of great stereo effect. Um, so I'm at this really fun period of experimenting um, with vocal techniques, but also just um, expressing things about 
what I feel about music. Like the song I colored it in for you is really about the desire to make art and the desire to give it away. And so they, the lyrics got written and it got developed as we went through it together. And it became this kind of Dr. Seuss style wrapped with a carefree approach, but also a lot of passion. And they're great for, um, for expressing all of that. I colored it in for you uh, thematically being about this idea of, of making art and giving it away. I'd be interested to hear you say more about that. Yeah. Well, in experimenting with, with different words and phrases with Natalie and Jill um, and having them sing them and rap them and kind of everything from talking to them, talking them out to, um, to, you know, really more passionate um, delivery. Um, Basically, I I had the idea that I wanted to write a song that that addressed that feeling that that all artists feel on some level, where they have a um, a desire to make something. In fact, that applies to almost everybody, really. A lot of us, when we're children, we have that desire, and there can be this incredible creative period when we we're not. Um, constricted by um, various time guidelines or, or jobs or things like that. Um, and so it's about kind of this, this human impulse to create and also the desire to give it to somebody, to share it with people or to give it to a particular person. And in the case of the song, I Colored It In For You, it's kind of about this creative delirium that one can get into where they're inspired to make something or somebody that they care about inspires them to make something and then they just get into it and it and it becomes kind of this this thing that as it starts to take shape um it's really exciting and you feel like you're you're kind of in this trance um where it almost starts leading you um and so the song is about that and they both um we're really great at getting across the, the kind of very kind of carefree, um, just kind of um, off-the-cuff way of, um, of expressing it, but they also um, put a lot of passion into it. 
too, and that's something that I think goes with the whole nature of the track. It's a, it's a groove track, but it also, I wanted it to have a lot of urgency, and I feel like they really got that across. Will Sparkler give you the chance as an artist to say more specific things than you've been able to say in the past, writing primarily instrumental music? Well, that's a good question. I mean, theoretically, yeah. And that could be an um, an interesting door to have open because since so much of my creative uh, life has been in writing um, instrumental music, which is inherently something abstract and in this other dimension, um, I could definitely be more literal. Um, however, I have to say that so far, I, I am kind of drawn to the obliqueness um, of of words and phrases where you're not necessarily um, expressing something literally, or at least not in the, the clearest way. And in that way, um, not to be deliberately obfuscating um, the, the issues that are that are in there, but I do like to give the listener a lot of opportunity to interpret the way they want to interpret it. Um, for example, we're doing a piece called In the Beginning, which is taken mostly from a Dylan Thomas poem, the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, about his take on the beginning of the world, the creation of the world. Um, it has kind of some biblical stuff in there because he used a lot of biblical references, but it's it's actually a very deep and musical and abstract poem and it fits, um, we put it to a very slow, kind of, very slow, I guess you could say rock beat, although it's, it's stylistically um, a, a bit um, obscure. It's, it's, anyway, we, we basically created this piece around this poem, and the poem ends up being narrated um, almost like an instrument. It, it, sound, it actually ends up sounding almost like an instrumental piece, but with a human voice, because the words are obscure, um, but yet so musical. So there's well, a lot of possible meanings people can infer from this stuff, I think. I'd like to uh, come back to Sparkler uh, toward the end of our conversation, but uh, for listeners who may be being introduced to you on this program, I, I thought we might give them a little sketch of your history and uh, I think it's the case that, I mean, there's now the, after 400-something episodes of this show, I'm sure there's been a lot of West Coast people, but I still feel like the jazz session has been a much more East Coast-centered thing, primarily because it was based in New York most of the time it's wow. been on. Uh, but you come you know, firmly out of, out of this, the Bay Area uh, you know, ever since you started playing music, uh, and I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what that was like growing up, um, you know, kind of coming up as a musician in the seventies, uh, in Berkeley and, and how you feel that's informed your playing in a way that maybe is different than if you'd grown up, uh, you know, on the East coast. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was born and raised in Berkeley and grew up in the sixties and was kind of coming of age at the time of the anti-war riots that Berkeley is known for, um, and grew up surrounded by, um, a pretty progressive, mostly liberal um, worldview, um, talking about my parents and a lot of my teachers. Um, although another thing that um, is great about the Bay Area is that it is so diverse and um, 
there are a lot of different worldviews there, and there were um, likewise there were a lot of opportunities to hear a wide variety of music. So when I first started just going to being able to walk around by myself and go to things with friends, like in the in the early seventies. There were a lot of free concerts that one could hear on the UC Berkeley campus and even in the parks, even on the street. I used to hear the Edwin Hawkins Singers, the great gospel group from Oakland, California, um, playing on the street on Shattuck Avenue in downtown Berkeley. Um, and then I was also a part of this groundbreaking jazz program, which was started by the late Herb Wong who was an education person. He was the principal at a local elementary school, but he was also uh, a jazz lover and writer on jazz. He wrote for Downbeat and had a jazz radio show and was pretty good friends with Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong. Um, so he was a really important figure, and it was his idea mostly to have this experimental program in the schools that would offer the kids the opportunity to, to be in this jazz band where um, he had hired Phil Hardiman and Dick Whittington, two local teachers, to try to deconstruct this music and simplify it a bit so that kids could play rather complex tunes, um, but because they were somewhat simplified, um, they could figure out a, a way to play them and it wouldn't be too intimidating. So as a teenager... I found myself having had a few years of experience playing in the schools with, where it gave me and other kids the chance to play without a lot of, um, without any, you know, we could experiment really without any pressure. And we have, we were encouraged to solo and improvise and even compose. And then we were constantly surrounded by all this music. You could hear a Chinese traditional group or a group playing John Cage's percussion works in the park. Um, we were going to the Keystone Corner a lot, um, legendary jazz club in San Francisco. Um, some of my friends and I, Stephen Bernstein, one of my oldest friends, a great trumpet player who I play with a lot still today. Um, and we'd go hear people like Cecil Taylor and Sun Ra, the art ensemble of Chicago, um, Dexter Gordon, McCoy Tyner, um, so the Bay Area was a great place to soak up a lot of stuff, and we'd get sometimes informal lessons with people that were professional musicians in the area. Um, and by the time I got really interested in composition um, in my senior year at Berkeley High School, there were a lot of like-minded young musicians around me from which we were able to form the Hieroglyphics Ensemble.
Oh, and that's, a, of course, a natural place to go next. Will you talk about hieroglyphics and how that came to be? Yeah, hieroglyphics was formed when I was 17, which was back in 1977, um, in my senior year at Berkeley High School. Um, and I initially played drums in it. Um, at that point, I, yeah, I had started as a drummer, actually. That was my first instrument um, when I was about three years old and picked up piano um at about nine and picked up saxophone at about 11. And since that time, I've pretty much always played all three. And I had been playing saxophone and sitting in on gigs around the Bay Area, and I was starting to learn the jazz vernacular and a lot of the repertoire. And I had a a teacher who would give me a list of tunes to learn, and then I would go to these jam sessions and and play. Um, But I really wanted to right. And listening to Cecil Taylor was something that influenced me a lot. Um, He's known more as an improviser, but actually, um, when you really get into his music, you start to realize that uh, it's a lot like bebop in jazz, in that there's a very, very specific, but very complex harmonic structure going on. And... um, I was hearing a lot of things in improvised music in general that I wanted to put into compositions, and I wanted to be able to take some of the great improvisational experiences that I'd had and keep them somehow. Like, we'd arrive at something spontaneously that, listening back to a recording of it, I'd think, I want to find a way to retain that, and maybe in doing so, create a composition that would have the same kind of organic flow that a good improvisation would I basically formed this band with about 17 other Berkeley High classmates and a few um, older guys um, from around the Bay Area, and we just started playing. Um, We played festivals and clubs. Um, I went to New York in the late 70s for a bit, um, but then eventually came back and started writing again for the band and by the time uh, the late 80s had rolled around, we were playing pretty regularly. Um, I'd gotten a commission to write a piece for the San Francisco Jazz Festival with a guest artist, and I called Don Cherry, who had long been a hero of mine, the great pocket trumpeter and world musician, one of the first people to introduce uh, Indian instruments like tabla and sitar into his music and African musicians and Japanese musicians. Um, so he was natural to call, and I had met him and worked with him before, and he ended up joining us, and then he ended up having such a good time that he moved to the Bay Area, and we ended up working together quite a bit over the next few years in a smaller group that he called Multiculti, and he also did an album called Multiculti where he invited me and in the hieroglyphics um, to come and play a couple of the pieces that I'd written for him and record them on that album. So he gave us a big boost and around that time, we met um, the Grateful Dead, and they invited us to open some of their shows. 
Um, so that was the, a really fruitful time for us, and it opened up a lot of doors. how you came up with the name hieroglyphics yeah it was um probably a result of my 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 handwriting being a little speaking of things being oblique <laughs> i was using kind of um various different symbols um uh, to try to convey what i wanted to happen in the piece and at one point in rehearsal one of the other kids said man this stuff looks like hieroglyphics and and then I thought about it, and also at that time, it was an important time in African-American creative music because there was um, an affirmation, reaffirmation of ties with Africa, with African culture, um, and musicians, composers like Sun Ra, and bands like the Pyramids, um we're talking about Egypt and the connection there. And then Fela Kuti, the, the great Nigerian singer, activist, saxophonist, who was also um, tracing his roots back to Egypt. So it, in, a, in a certain kind of general way, it seemed to fit in terms of um, the, the, the actual manuscript um, and symbol symbolism that we were dealing with. And it also kind of reaffirmed the African roots of jazz and world music and that type of, that type of connection, which at that point was very strong for us too, with a lot of um, influences and, and musicians from Africa and Afro-Cuban diaspora um, playing with the band as well. You uh, kind of elided over, uh, just by saying you went to the East Coast for a bit in the late 70s, uh, a, lot of, a lot of great people that you played with there, like Carla Blay and David Amram and Carl Berger. And I feel like we could spend another entire show just talking about all of that, but I at least wanted to, to mention that they existed. And then I, I wanted just to, to ask you again about, uh, about Don Cherry. One thing that strikes me about Don Cherry, particularly as a band leader, is that he uh, he very much was open to whatever could make good music rather than a set 
group of definitions of what constituted, you know, a jazz group or improvised music. He just seemed to welcome yeah. to welcome anything and everything and figure out some way to work it into his vision of what his music should sound like. And I, I wonder, uh, I mean, having heard your music over the years and the various bands that you've played with and the wide range of people you've played with, and now even things like Sparkler, which, you know, strikes me as a, in some ways, a, a pretty decent sized departure from the other stuff that you're doing. I, I wonder if you feel like some of that Don Cherry influence of it exists and I like it, so we'll make it work is now carried over into your own band leading. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but um, but that you know that's a good point. I I think that um, I I most definitely was influenced by Don's approach on a lot of levels, and um, and I like how you said that he was somebody that, that did have this wide ranging um, attitude because musically he certainly did. I mean, playing in his bands, we would play an Indian raga um, followed by an Ornette Coleman tune, followed by one of my tunes. Um, followed by some Turkish music. Um, he used to refer to it as being somewhat like turning on a radio and flipping the dial. Um, he really got off on that. He liked taking people on a journey, but almost to the point of confusing them because the information could be so varied. Um, but as well as being varied, you know, the other thing is done really kind of came to prominence and really flowered um, first in the 60s. And everything was being questioned then. And I, I, you know, being somebody from Berkeley where um, the same types of things were were happening, um, and Don was mostly in New York at that time, um, I I kind of see the whole thing as, as being connected. I mean, Don... Um, also was wide-ranging in his attitudes about what even could constitute performance. Sometimes he would walk on while we were already playing, and he'd walk through the audience singing. Um, other times he'd be on stage, and we'd be playing in Germany for a, uh, a live concert that was being televised, and he would decide he wanted to stand somewhere else on stage and play or sing that wasn't even by a microphone. Um and then often, as many listeners are aware who had gotten a chance to see him or see videos of him, he would sit down on stage in a lotus position and play that way. Um, so he was in all kinds of ways um, unconventional. Um, and that kind of thing for most people, most musicians, and certainly the musicians that fall under the umbrella of jazz, where spontaneity is a big part of what we do, um, that kind of thing is really inspiring and refreshing to see because you see somebody who's continually asking questions about what um, what's possible, what you can do, um, and it just opens up so many possibilities. And Ornette Coleman had done that in music. Um, and Don, I think, even, even did it further and just in terms of uh, what you can have happening on stage with different backdrops and incense burning and things like that. So in Sparkler and what I'm doing now, um, I, I, I do think that um, there is a certain element of, um, of wanting to bring a lot of things into it. Um, at the same time, there's something important, I think, about Don that he shared with Albert Eiler 
and um, and other musicians in the '60s, um, which was that they actually wanted to um, find the universal sound. They wanted to be able to write and play music that would be universally um, accepted around the world. And a lot of great music of various kinds is accepted around the world despite political differences or language barriers or anything else. But they also kind of wanted to find the essence of music is, is how I look at it. And that's inspiring too, because if you're going to do that, you have to get away from style. And I think that also with, with Sparkler and with a lot of what I try to do, I try to kind of get at the essence of music. You know, I write the drum patterns and the bass lines and we're not using any pre-made stuff. It's all kind of homemade music made from scratch. And in that way, um, we're, we're trying to kind of just get it at music's essence without being too bound by stylistic conventions. Since you, you mentioned Albert Eiler in that conversation, is that, is that idea of getting to the essence, does that involve a, a spiritual component? Some, something that speaks to people on a, a deep kind of interior level? Well, that's something that for me is, um, ideally it's inherent in the music. It's not necessarily an inspiration for the music or even a goal of the music in, in my case, although it is for many other people. Um, for me, I kind of see it as the end result, if it's good. Like if it works, um, then you kind of have the feeling, we, we all have the feeling that it's, it's something that's kind of um, divine or, it's, it, or there is some kind of way that it's really got this universal, um, or this potential to speak universally. I think a lot of artists probably feel the same way. In my case, it is so. It's, it's not something that's defined or is really consciously thought about, but um, if the end result is we, a bunch of us who have never met before and will probably never see each other again, have this connection to music, then that is definitely something spiritual.
continuing on with your uh, biography, in the late 90s, you moved to Brooklyn, where you're still based. And in the 2000s, you played with Trey Anastasio, who Natalie Cressman, who's in Sparkler, now plays with, with Cyril Baptista. Uh, and then in 2003, formed the New York edition of Hieroglyphics. Is there a is there a, a, a conscious kind of uh, sound or thematic concept that unites the, the East and West Coast versions of hieroglyphics? Is, or was this just a, a chance to do something completely new with this band? Well, I, th- I think that it, it's, um, it, there is kind of a unifying sound. Um, it might sound a little obscure to people, but basically with hieroglyphics um, and with Sparkler... Um, I kind of want to create this rich tapestry of sound. Um, and I've, I've pretty much done that wherever I get the chance to write. I've written sometimes for other groups like the Kronos Quartet, um, and various, um, big bands that I get commissioned to write for sometimes. And basically I just want to create this, this rhythmic stew, um, there's also something to me that I, I, I've always found um, like when I hear really dense drumming, um, even very abstract drumming, it's almost like being around a fire. Um, likewise, in reggae music where the bass is really big and, and massive, um, it's almost like there's a warmth if you stand next to the speakers and you hear that bass pumping out a really great bass line it's like you're enveloped by something, right? It's also like kind of relates to this sort of basic human urge um, to be around a fire where people are telling stories. So um, the New York, um, the geographical aspect of of living in New York, um, I'm sure has, has changed some things. I don't know necessarily what they are because I don't really have the perspective on it. Um, but basically all I've ever tried to do is kind of make this, this giant musical fire, basically, that we can, we can, um, kind of tell stories through music with, and with Sparkler, with the, with the vocals actually tell, uh, tell real stories with, with language as well. A musical fire and a rhythmic stew. I like your imagery. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Good. Uh, 2015 is going to be a, a year of releases for you. Uh, we are speaking on the on the first day of February, and uh, if if I've got my calendar correct, this month you're releasing a solo piano album, "Songs of the Tree of Destiny." Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, this album has been in the works for uh, several years now. I recorded it at my good friend Josh Roseman's studio um, called the Louvre in Williamsburg um, a few years back. And um, it's partly the product of some studio recording there and a couple of things uh, were done before a live audience as well. And solo piano work is something that I've been interested in doing most of my life in one form or another. And with hieroglyphics and some of my other groups, um, I've always played solo piano interludes as sort of as connectors between pieces when we don't feel like the music should stop. Um, I'll do these interludes. And the piano is just very natural for me. It's the instrument that I write from the most frequently. Um, And so I wanted to 
do an album of, of piano music, and some of the music is my own, but for the first time I'm also doing some covers. I do a Beatles tune, um, the Lennon-McCartney song, For No One. I also did a, a blues that I learned from hearing, or basically stealing from the great pianist Hampton Haas. Um, and there's some gospel and spirituals in there as well. Um, I did one of Josh Roseman's originals. Um, and so there's there's a lot of variety in there, um, and it's something that, that I want to do more of. And this release is also exciting because it's going to be one of the first releases on the new Louvre Arts label, which is going to be available digitally. Um, some other great New York-based musicians like Charlie Burnham and Andrew D'Angelo are also going to have releases on that label that I think will be, be coming up in the next month. And then in the late spring, early summer, we'll get the, the full album that you've whet our appetites for from Sparkler. Yeah, inshallah, as they say in the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, God willing, hopefully so. Yeah, we're, um, we're basically um, in, the, in the kind of midway through the album. Uh, we have about five songs recorded now, and we're going to do four more is the plan um, we've been performing all these all these songs and developing them and um, Bill Laswell who I mentioned earlier the great bassist and producer has been kind enough to let us use his studio in West Orange New Jersey um, to record a lot of the stuff that we're doing now that we've done since that track I colored it in for you um, so we're doing it little by little everybody's busy and um, we also want to have the luxury of being able to record a bit and then work on it and adjust it um, but the band is really at an exciting point where we've, we've got a we've got a lot of material a lot more than a CD's worth ready to go and I think by the spring um, the full CD should be available and then toward uh, the fall it looks like hieroglyphics will have a new album as well 
Well, the plan is to go in and record sometime this year. Um, and there's a the hieroglyphics have basically been on hold for the last three years because I did a lot of touring with Omar Sosa, the great Cuban pianist, and with Daphnis Prieto, who's a great drummer who's also from Cuba, writes his own music, and with other groups like my old friend Stephen Bernstein, the great trumpeter, with Henry Butler, the great pianist from New Orleans. Um, but just before hieroglyphics um, kind of got put on the back burner, we had gotten about it a CD's worth of new material together, partly as a result of a commission that I got from Chamber Music America to write a new piece. And that new piece, um, speaking of music with vocals, featured Abdullah Jabate, who's a really outstanding musician from Mali. Some people may know he lives here in New York. And he's one of those multi-instrumentalist historians, storytellers, um, which are known as griots. He's a griot, um, meaning he has this official um, title um, based on what he learned to do growing up um, in the town he's from, in Mali. And he's also a musician who not only deals with a really strong tradition of singing and storytelling, but he likes to collaborate with musicians of all kinds. And we've been working together for several years. And the music that we're planning to record this year is from this suite called Aural Histories. And it features Abdullahi improvising and on some sections he's actually written words in his native language in Wolof, um, but also in Arabic and even some in Hebrew. So that will also be a bit of a departure. Um, he did sing on a couple of tracks on the, the last Hieroglyphics album, which was from 2005, It Is Written. Um, but on this new one, we're going to do music that has been developed with him in mind and really intertwining with what he does singing-wise with the improvisations of the different people in the band. So, with luck, we'll have the band New York Hieroglyphics 14 members this time um, starting to play live and do some touring in the fall of this year. Sounds very exciting. Solo piano record on Louvart's uh, Sparklers album uh, coming out in the uh, late spring, early summer, and then Hieroglyphics uh, on tour and also doing some recording. 
Uh, it just it sounds like a great 2015. My guest uh, is Peter Apfelbaum. And Peter, it's been uh, such a pleasure to talk to you and to hear this music. And I thank you uh, for taking the time to be on the jazz session. Well, thank you very much, Jason. It's great to have the opportunity to get the music out there to whoever it's intended for. Um, so I hope people have enjoyed it. And it's it's been great being on the show. from Peter Applebaum. Thanks so much to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo. You'll find The Jazz Session on Facebook at facebook.com slash thejazzsession and you'll find me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. Remember, I am doing stand-up this weekend, February 20th and 21st at Wisecrackers in State College. Visit jasoncrane.org for information about those shows and to get tickets. And if you need some writing done for your artistic pursuits, visit cranewrites.com. Thanks so much for listening. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.